What's going on, guys? Welcome to episode 51 of the Data Driven Strength Wait, Podcast. Zach, Zach, give him a hook. Give him a hook. Oh, give him what? a hook. We need, we need to give him a hook. Because oh, if right, anybody... Yeah. How if many anybody sets comes are across the podcast, <laughs> If anybody comes across the podcast and they hear that lame intro, they're just going to click away. So give him a hook. Oh, man. Yeah, so you know the the faithful listeners of this podcast uh, should know we're, we're we're trying to upgrade our methods here, and uh, so I guess we're going to start off this podcast by saying we're going to discuss how many sets is optimal to grow muscle, and and, and that's what really you're find unique out by topic to talk to about. Really, yeah, exactly. Wow, no no one's ever thought about talking up talking about that. Super before. also super unique. Yeah, for you sure. You should you guys should subscribe on YouTube because we know no one watches there. No one listens there. So you should definitely go subscribe. Um, I think we're like a little bit over a thousand subscribers there, which blows my mind because it looks like a, like we look like 12 year olds on it, but we might have, we might have some better visuals coming soon. So yeah, check it out. Um, the, be the better visuals do not include seeing Zach more often, but, um, <laughs> But yeah, also if you're watching on YouTube right now and you're an Ohio State fan, shoot me a DM if you can if you can spot what I'm talking about. <laughs> and you'll what's, win what's a special prize. What what's that called? There's there's like a there's like a thing that people do with uh in in their houses where they have stuff like that and they have like the Oh, it's places. like around Christmas time. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I can't I can't remember what it's called, but like um I don't want to say real, where's real, Waldo real, real that's not <laughs> Real, real festive guys well this has been a top tier intro um so no but shout out shout out to velu because he told us we need to give a hook um yeah. uh, training volume for hypertrophy so <laughs> yeah <laughs> really cool stuff also if you watch on youtube you can see a prototype that we've had for months of some apparel that i'm half covering with my with my mic so you you can see a little sneak peek of that which We'll probably never actually release, but we'll see. <laughs> Visuals are absolutely crushing it today. So, yeah, now that we've got the audience really hooked in with just an absolutely, you know, I think it's part of the hook to say that you're hooking, right? Like that's that I'm just want to get Velu's fed. No, it's actually sure. it's actually really cringe when you do it this way. So. <laughs> so, yeah, so we obviously did it right then. Um, so, yeah, so we're going to talk about Josh's most recent newsletter today. Um, you know obviously as we kind of mentioned the discussion for you know how many sets should i perform per week for muscle growth is something that's discussed you know ad nauseum almost um but i think i think josh did a good job in this one kind of pairing some you know very well-cited analyses with maybe some that people aren't as familiar with and we'll talk about some of the nuances and wrinkles that josh likes to put in the potential title here um to that discussion and how that probably maybe slightly changes the way you view it in terms of implementing these kind of recommendations into practice. So with that in mind, Josh, take it away. What'd you do? What'd you find, et cetera? Yeah. Um, I'm like half serious when I say that like training volume, like kind of making fun of ourselves for writing a newsletter, and making content about training volume, because it's like the most well talked about thing. And I think a lot of people kind of think we have it figured out to some degree. Um, and I'd also say this newsletter is probably one of the simpler ones we've done. Like, you know, some of the previous ones we've taken whole bodies of research and kind of like did a kind of informal meta-analysis type thing. And we didn't necessarily do that here just for sake of it not being a multi-month project. Um, but 
this one took, even though it was quite simple, this one took pretty long to edit to make sure we were very precise with our language and how we were presenting the the two primary meta-analyses around this topic. And again, even though this is like, oh, training volume, I kind of know what they're going to say. We're probably going to repeat a lot of those things, but hopefully we'll repeat a lot of those things in a way you haven't heard before and bring up some considerations that are probably under-discussed and that will make this useful in general. Also, right off the bat, um, someone commented on Instagram about this, which I thought was a really good point of clarification. I also wanted to say it here is that this entire podcast, at least unless we say otherwise, is around hypertrophy. It's not around strength because things get a little bit tricky there. And I think it's episode 37 where we talk about that further. We talk about different considerations for training volume for hypertrophy versus training volume for strength. Now, I'd say in general, you know, most listeners here are going to be on the strength side of things. But as we've discussed in probably the last 51 episodes, well, I guess 50, because this is 51, um, we've talked about how, you know, these concepts are still going to be relevant for strength because our general conceptualization about long-term strength gains overlaps a lot with getting bigger. So with that said, um, I'll briefly overview uh, the two meta-analyses that we provided some visuals on in the newsletter and um, again, just kind of try to triangulate those and, and use that as a jumping off point for our discussion here. So the first is from Schoenfeld 2017. And I think if if you've only read one research paper in your entire life, it's probably this one. <laughs> um, I have no idea how many times it's been cited, but it's been cited a lot. And it's a really good paper and, and it's super helpful. And again, kind of to some degree, like change the game and change the narrative. And that's for good reason. Um, so this, they did three analyses, I think, in the meta-analysis, but um, the one I want to highlight here and the one I provided a visual of is they kind of bucketed groups doing less than five sets per muscle per week, um, and then groups doing five to nine sets per week, and then groups doing 10 or more sets per week. Um, and I, pro I, I provide a bit of a visual on this, and um, there seems to be a somewhat linear relationship as you go from less than five sets per week to five to nine sets per week to 10 plus sets per week. Um, they also did a linear regression where they basically treated sets as um, a continuous variable. And they found that that was also a significant relationship. Um, now, that's probably something we'll talk about a little bit more in depth here. Um, that's not to say that this relationship is definitely linear. There are some considerations there. However, from kind of what I just outlined, it seems to be that this relationship was at least close to linear with the research they included in that meta-analysis. And I, I'm not, don't quote me on this, but I think the highest volume group in that meta-analysis was like 15 sets a week. So in general, it's kind of lower volume work uh, or lower volume studies. And a lot of the more, uh, yeah, a lot of the higher volume studies that a lot of people might be aware of have been published since then. Um, so again, I kind of view this initial meta-analysis from 2017, again, kind of showing more or less a, uh, a linear dose response relationship between volume and hypertrophy as kind of just like relevant for those lower volumes. So that's where um, a recent meta-analysis from, I believe it's pronounced Basval and colleagues from 2022. So it was published last year and they included like six slash seven studies, I think in the analyses that are in the newsletter. Um, it was six studies 
Um, and then they did three separate analyses. So some of these analyses didn't have a lot of studies going into them. So I would, I would keep that in mind. So they did one analysis for the quadriceps. So any studies that reported quadriceps, uh, muscle size or muscle thickness or, or cross-sectional area, one in there, one for biceps and one for triceps. And the inclusion criteria, uh, I believe the studies had to be load equated. So they're only differing in the number of, uh, the number of sets per week. They had to have one group training in what they called a moderate volume range, which is 12 to 20 sets per week. That's how they defined it. And they had to have another group training in the, uh, training with 20 or more sets per week. Okay. And again, they analyzed, um, just kind of those two buckets. Also, the, the subjects had to have at least one year of training experience. So that's something the authors emphasized was that it was a pretty homogenous meta-analysis, which I, I agree um, in general. I would just say a lot of resistance training research, or uh, I should say a lot of resistance training meta-analyses are far from homogenous. But given the, the field, it was a semi-homogenous meta-analysis. So even though it wasn't a ton of studies, I think the, the results are... Um, you know, worth, worth considering for, for our practice. Um, I'll also note that all of the studies trained to failure. Um, we've discussed how that's kind of a loaded term and can mean different people to diff, uh, different things to different people. Um, but nonetheless, all studies were to quote unquote failure, um, except for one by Aubin and colleagues at which, uh, in that, that study, they, uh, trained to two reps in reserve. Um, and in terms of the three analyses I mentioned, again, the quadriceps, the biceps and the triceps. To summarize it from a high level, there is some indication that the high volume groups, so 20 plus sets per week, were a little bit better. So, but it, it wasn't overly convincing. The triceps analysis was significant. Um, there was an effect size of 0 0.50, and the p-value was was well below 0 0.05. It was 0 0.01. Um, the quadriceps um, was a, a smallish effect size of 0.20 in favor of high volume, but that did not reach statistical significance. And the biceps was, was essentially a wash between the two groups. So again, it kind of depends on your perspective and your biases probably, but my opinion trying to be as objective as possible, um, which doesn't make sense to put those two phrases together in one sentence, but again, trying to be as objective as possible. Um, I'd say there's a bit of an indication that those high volume groups were better. So I want to pause there and I want to talk about that because, you know, we'll, we'll dive into some other considerations that I discussed in the rest of the newsletter and also just, you know, some other practical considerations, but I want to, I want to pause there and just kind of take a step back and say, okay, we have these two really solid meta-analyses and let's just talk about what we can take away from them. And this is kind of how I started the newsletter. And this is kind of how I finished the newsletter by the time we actually sent it out. Um, but the exact way I described it was a little bit different based on some of Zach's comments, which I think are really good to point out to people and to discuss here. So my initial approach here was to say, okay, the Schoenfeld 2017 meta-analysis, again, in general, lower volumes and those, those kind of thresholds for their volume buckets, if you will, were a little bit on the lower side. So let's just kind of conceptualize Schoenfeld as lower slash moderate volumes and then let's conceptualize the Basval meta-analysis as moderate slash high volumes. In the Schoenfeld meta-analysis, we see more or less, again, I'm a little cautious here, but more or less a linear dose response relationship between more sets and more hypertrophy. 
In the Basval study, we see a little bit better growth on average for higher volumes, but not as convincing as the Schoenfeld meta-analysis. So if you combine the two, you might be inclined to say that that is evidence for diminishing returns um, once you get somewhere in that 10 to 20 set per week range, which I think is a decent takeaway. And that's what the actual training takeaway was. Um, but we were very precise in our language and we kind of um, adjusted that again based on some of Zach's comments, which I thought were, were very good and that I intuitively knew, but I might not have put as much weight into the potential implications as I think is necessary. So Zach, I'll give you the option. Do you want me to give that overview or do you want to take a crack at it? I mean, you can, you can kind of put it in your perspective, I guess, and I can just kind of add anything um, that I think maybe is important to kind of touch on. But, but yeah, Yeah. in short, I, I a hundred percent agree with the takeaway in terms of taking that into practice. Like if I had a client hundred percent, I think where this conversation gets difficult is that some of the some of the analyses are used in ter- I, I think ultimately what what happens is exactly what you just said. Intuition takes the findings and paints them in a way of like how we interpret them in a practical sense. And I think people kind of assume that's exactly what the paper tells us and just just don't really highlight that slight assumption of the integration of our experience and kind of viewing the results through that lens, if that makes sense. But I'll let you kind of see what you got from it and I'll add my two cents. No, that's important. And, and that's what, it's so tough. I try to remind myself every time I come across something, um, whether it's like an actual paper or it's something based on research, Try to come into it with a bank, a blank slate, and acknowledge your your biases, but it's just it's just hard, right? Um, and again, I think that's important to keep in mind here. But ultimately, um, the high level point that Zach was was making, and that I very much agree with, is that you can't necessarily make a comment about the dose response relationship with a high degree of confidence when you're taking this bucketed approach to training volumes. So let's take, for example, you know, if you were to just look at a, you know, between group comparison of less than five sets per week and five to nine sets per week, it kind of depends where you fall in that one, uh, one to four sets per week range and where you fall in that five to nine sets per week range, right? You can just intuitively see how, let's say theoretically, um, you know, there's, there's one study that compared four to six sets per week and saw no difference. And then one study that compared one to nine sets per week. And I guess the finding doesn't really matter, but you can see how both of those comparisons could be put into the same meta-analytic comparison. And I'm not saying that's a, a bad approach. It's just a limited approach as with as with all research, right? But I think there are some important limitations there that we can't necessarily have a high degree of confidence in the exact nature of this relationship, given that bucketed approach and a continuous approach would be a little bit better. I will mention that there are some people out there that have done a continuous approach, um, whether it's through blogs or actually in that Schoenfeld uh, meta-analysis, they did a continuous analysis, um, but that doesn't necessarily tell us the the best indication of the nature of the relationship because it was essentially just looking at, hey, is this linear regression significant? 
right? So I hope that makes some degree of sense to the listener and it might not be the most intuitive thing in the world, but I think it's important to emphasize that, yes, again, from a practical perspective, and because because that's what we have to do every single day is is make decisions about training. Yeah, there's probably some diminishing returns that start to occur. And if I had to guess on average, it's in that 10 to 20 set per week range. But triangulating these data, as we just talked about, and that I kind of frame this around, isn't the most accurate thing. And I wouldn't be surprised if the nature was a little bit different. So yeah, I'll let you clean that up, Zach, or or add anything to it as you see fit. Yeah, no, that, that was a, that was a really good summary. I think, yeah, the, the, the nugget that I think is just important to take away is that exactly like you said, without analyzing the variable of interest in this case sets continuously, we really can't inform the dose response relationship, which is what we want to know when we actually take that away into training, we can approximate the, you know, the effects within the, the different categorical ranges that they reported and they analyze. And obviously that's useful to some degree, but in terms of actually quantifying the dose response relationship, you would need to do that with a different set of methods. And like you said, within the, 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 uh, the Schoenfeld meta-analysis that's often well cited, they did do a continuous meta-regression and that was significant. But for whatever reason, I think it's like you said, it's it's that integration of our cautious practitioner hat doesn't want to make that the the thing because it can easily be misinterpreted, right? Just like you said, there were no studies that included greater than 15 sets per week. A linear relationship suggests that 45 sets per week will optimize outcomes. That's not what you want to tell somebody if you're if they're actually going to train. So that's where, you know, the context of the entire analysis is very, very important. But in that, you know, the, the Schoenfeld meta-analysis, when you are looking at the, the analysis that probably best informs the dose response, it was linear and it was significant. But just like we discussed, the thing that they didn't do, which is, which is no fault from the authors, they just didn't choose to do this analysis, is they didn't compare different relationships of that response, which potentially could have indicated diminishing returns. And that's ultimately what you'd want to see to formally analyze that. And obviously the two analyses would hopefully be done together. So all those effects could be, you know, pooled and the confidence of the overall relationship would be increased um, by increasing that sample size. So, um, so yeah, there's just a few steps that I think would, from a scientific perspective, make that, that claim that we're getting to through the combination of evidence experience a little bit stronger from the scientific perspective, but that doesn't necessarily change the fact that, that's probably still what I'm going to say, just for potentially slightly different reasons. So I think it's it's one of those things where it's like from a from a from an athlete's perspective, I don't think it changes things a ton, but it is important to keep in mind as you know that analysis could eventually be done and and shed some additional light on this and maybe help us understand things a bit better. And the the part of this conversation that I think I'm the most interested in is I also think some of those seemingly minor factors of like the, the one that I've been thinking about recently a ton is the indirect versus direct set, uh, quantification method that, that is so big because no one counts indirect sets in practice that I'm aware of. Like I just, I've never personally done that. Like I don't think of bicep curls as all my lat pull downs, all my rows. Like I just, that's just not how I think about it. So when I'm thinking getting in the kind of volume sweet spot range for most people, for biceps, I'm thinking, okay, let's do 10 to 20 sets of direct bicep work. And that's different than what has been analyzed, right? So it just, 
I think that 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 consideration is just one of many that I think needs to have a little bit of additional context when we kind of talk about this question. Um, but you got you got multiple that kind of uh, apply in that in that category for sure. Yeah, I think that's a great jumping off point for kind of the next part of this that I think we should move to. And those are factors that might influence optimal volumes. That was the the title of the newsletter, right? What what factors influence optimal volumes? And that's a great one to, to start with um, is how volume is quantified. This doesn't actually change which volume is optimal, just influences whether that 10 to 20 set number is actually any good. <laughs> um, in both of the meta-analyses, they counted indirect sets the same as direct sets. So if you did lap pulldowns, um, that would count the same as a bicep curl for bicep volume. And that's obviously very important to keep in mind. Now, there is a paper from 2019. Uh, the lead author was, was Brad Schoenfeld. And they pointed out how this is something that needs to be investigated further. Um, but they, their kind of conclusion, at least at that point, based on the research, is probably counting indirect and direct sets the same is the most defensible approach. Um, I'm not super brushed up on the um, compound versus isolation research, but from my understanding of, of that general body of research, I don't think you could make a very strong case for them to be counted differently, but I would love to see separate analyses with yeah, that, uh, that taken into account. That's immediately what I was going to say is like, I don't even think it's a question of what's right. Like that's, that's not what I think is really the question. It's the question is like people in my experience, at least do not use the indirect approach for the most part, like when they're thinking about this and applying it. So at least having numbers for both would be, useful and then seeing if those relationships potentially differ. But um, yeah, what I've, what yeah, I've seen the most good. is people just kind of have lower volumes for like arms, for example, like I'd say it's pretty common for someone to be like, yeah, I do 10 to 20 sets of back, but then for arms, I do five to 10 sets. Um, I've seen that recommendation because of that consideration. So I think, I think people are aware of this, but it might be overlooked by at least a, enough people that it's worth mentioning here. Um, and for example, if we if we take that one significant finding from the Bowes-Val paper, um, and that being the the tricep outcomes um, favoring the higher volume conditions, um, the study within that analysis that had the greatest effects uh, was from Radiella and colleagues from 2015. What is that? Just completely terrible pronunciation. Radiella. Yeah, what he said. Um, and in that study, volume was split evenly between the bench press and tricep extensions. So in other words, like I think the total volume for the high volume group was 30 sets per week. When again, you count bench press and tricep extensions as each one set, like a one-to-one -one basis for the triceps. So you can make the argument that it should be lower than that. If you count them as say half a set, um, that, you know, compound movements like bench press being counted as half a set, for example. Um, so again, that's important to keep in mind and you can see how things get complicated here based on like, you know, this study did find a difference, but they, but they did a lot of volume on compound movements or indirect sets. Whereas this study did, um, you know, a lot of isolation work for the measured muscle, but it didn't find a difference or, or whatever the case may be. 
Which now that I'm saying that out loud, I think the quads might be the the analysis you're most interested in on average, just because there's in general, like if you're going to do a compound movement, it's going to train the quads pretty dang well. And if you're going to train an isolation movement, it's also going to train the, the quads pretty dang well. Um, and again, the quads um, saw a slight benefit for um, high volume. It was kind of in between the effects we saw for biceps and triceps, um, but again, not significant. So I think that that one is probably the most important factor to keep in mind. And I think that analysis will, will go a very, very long way to better understand this relationship. Um, I have a few more to ramble off here of different factors that might influence volume sweet spots. Some evidence-based, some not so much, uh, just kind of based on practical insights and to some degree, just kind of common sense and what a lot of people that, that work with, you know, people of different populations have, have kind of reported. So, um, the first is just kind of a general consideration about research in that, uh, study program designs typically are not very well-rounded. So if you're studying the biceps, you might do a good amount of bicep training, but you might kind of put back on the back burner or pecs on the back burner if you're not actually studying it. Sometimes they'll do like unsupervised training. Sometimes they'll let them do their own thing. There's a lot of different approaches there. Um, but in general, if you're going to measure a uh, a muscle group, you're going to kind of specialize it to some degree within that study. And that's a bit of a practical limitation because that's obviously not what we do in practice. If you're going to do 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week for every single muscle group, that adds up. And it's a little bit of a different beast, especially if, you know, you're also not a college student like a lot of these subjects are that maybe have uh, additional time constraints, things like that. Another just general study design characteristic is the fact that these studies are short term. Um, I think the, the shortest one was six weeks and the longest one was 24 weeks in that Basvel study. Um, that was an inclusion criteria is that it had to be at least six weeks. Um, on one hand, the longest study, um, it, actually the same one that Zach rudely, uh, interrupted me on a little bit ago, uh, that one was 24 weeks. So the longest study, um, and it had the most convincing effects of high volume, but again, the volume quantification method might be something to kind of keep in mind there or, or the exercise selection that they used. Um, on the other hand, you could say that, hey, doing 20 plus sets per week per muscle is impractical, whether that be from just like a general, you know, joint aches and pains, especially for strength athletes. That would be my experience. Yeah, you can you can have someone do 20 plus sets of squats per week. Might go really well for five weeks, but how about after that, right? So that's another thing to keep in mind. Um, another one is training status. You know, I think most people kind of intuitively understand that. Again, all the subjects here had to have been training consistently for at least one year. But um, some people anecdotally report that as they get more advanced, their volume requirements decrease. Other people have the opposite experience. So I'm not necessarily making a directional statement there about how that influences things, but it is a potential influencing, uh, potentially influential factor nonetheless. Another one is proximity to failure. Um, again, I, I alluded to this before. Failure is, is hard to define, um, and it's often unclear in these manuscripts. I don't fault the researchers for that, right? A lot of these studies were done at a time where maybe people were less cognizant of this. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's going to influence volume, right? If you're doing all your volume to 4 RIR, your volume requirements might be higher than if you're doing all your volume to failure. 
Um, another one is exercise selection. I think this is also um, under considered in the research in the sense that if you're doing a study on bench press, but let's say you're, you're measuring pec size, right? But the bench just kind of subjectively based on some general proxies of, of just whether you're getting a decent stimulus for the pecs. Um, if it's just a terrible exercise for the pecs for a given subject, you can't really do much about it, right? You have to keep the protocol standardized. Whereas in practice, you can, you can move someone away from that and be like, okay, we're going to go do this chest press machine that feels really good and might kind of have a more quote unquote directed stimulus at the pecs. Um, and I think that's just important to keep in mind and might kind of drag those volumes up a little bit just because yeah, to get a decent pec stimulus, you need to do six sets of pecs or six sets of bench press per session. Whereas you could get a similar stimulus with two or three sets on something else. Um, another one is, or I should say the last one is a bit of a, a bit of a can of worms, but that's something we've discussed on the show. So we probably don't need to dwell on it too much. And that's just individual differences in, you know, where people's volume sweet spots are. Um, some methodological considerations here in terms of how confident we can be in terms of the true variability that's going on. And I see Zach grinning, but we'll, we'll see if he can hold back on talking about that. And, uh, but nonetheless, I feel pretty confident in saying just again, kind of incorporating practical experience that, yeah, some folks are going to benefit or, or require very high volumes. Some aren't. And that's going to influence kind of where that sweet spot is. So yeah, those are the count them seven um, influential factors that I <laughs> I uh, mentioned in the newsletter. Um, so yeah, you got anything to add, Zach? No, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's, I think you agree. I think experience and kind of looking at the research would suggest that this is probably the most important variable, I would say. But that comes with kind of taking it granted that execution and kind of intent on each set proximity to failure are all really good first. Obviously you can't have, you know, a volume discussion without making sure people are training hard with, with a high quality. So I'm kind of taking that as a given those are in, in progressive overload, all that good stuff. Um, once that stuff is established, which isn't a, you know, an absolute trivial step, I realize that takes some um, time, effort and, and, and intention to make sure that stuff is dialed in. But once that has been squared away, then I do think this is probably the most important variable for the most part. And <laughs> the thing that's funny is while that I think is pretty clear, there's still so many questions that make this relationship a little bit hard to have really firm conclusions on. Like um, all the all the all the issues that you mentioned, while don't completely eliminate our ability to draw from this and use it in practice, it does like you know, that th there's some definite questions that remain before we can be pretty confident in um, applying this to um, lifters in different contexts and, and, and kind of understanding how these different things may influence that 10 to 20 recommendation. Um, and we might have to, you know, adjust that in either direction, both on the individual case, but on the group level as well. If we kind of realize some of these things, the other, the other thing um, I think is pretty common to talk about is rest periods as well. Um, I think if you're, you know, taking really short rests, there's been quite a quite a bit of chatter that people suspect those are the studies that um, kind of seem like higher set volumes are potentially necessary. Um, whereas if you're taking full rest periods, potentially that's no longer needed. 
Um, I, I could see that being the case, but I, I also don't, I have looked in it, into it formally, so I'm not entirely sure, but that's another thing to take into account, you know, rest period and how that influences how many sets are needed could be something else to, uh, keep in, uh, keep in the back of your mind. But yeah, honestly, I step away from this article, um, being pretty confident on what we do know, but also understanding there are quite a few things that we don't know. And that could ultimately influence practice here later to here down the road as we get more, uh, work in this area. Yeah. What I'm most interested in is elucidating to the best of our ability, this general relationship. Um, so we've kind of talked about this with proximity to failure. Like maybe we've kind of said it in jest here and there of like RERs we might generally have people train at, or might be a good idea. Um, but we try to avoid saying this is the best RER range and instead say, Hey, this is what we think is going on as you train closer or further from failure for each strength and hypertrophy outcomes in the short and long term." Same idea here. I'm not a huge fan of, of saying 10 to 20 sets, but I realize it's very helpful <laughs> for a lot of people to give them a good starting point. And again, I'm somewhat comfortable throwing that out there because it aligns decently with, with practical experience. But where I think the magic is going to happen is when we can best understand this general relationship for starting points in troubleshooting. Um, because, or I should say for troubleshooting, because if I kind of take a couple steps back, right? Like those actual recommendations of volume or of proximity to failure or frequency, those are great for the starting point, but they don't tell you a whole lot about troubleshooting. They don't really tell you about the, the true nature of the relationship. Like if someone says you need to train at one to three RAR for hypertrophy on average, okay, great. That's an awesome starting point. But what if, what if training isn't going so hot for, for a certain individual? And perhaps proximity to failure is a variable you're looking to manipulate. If you understand what happens when you get closer and further from failure and have a general idea of the magnitude of effect as you get that much closer or that much further from failure, that's going to inform your troubleshooting very well based on whatever kind of bottleneck is presenting. So it's, a, it's the same thing here, but I just think to the nth degree, because volume, like you mentioned, Zach, is probably the most important variable to individualize because it's it's kind of permissive to everything going well. If your training volume is egregiously high or egregiously low, nothing else is going to work, right? And that's and and I think the general nature of the relationship or our I should say our understanding of the nature of the relationship is overstated and we should be a little bit more cautious there and consider alternative possibilities until we have something to be a little bit more confident in is, is my general approach. But I realize that's not the most helpful thing besides the fact of just having an open mind. Um, that, that would probably be the biggest takeaway is having an open mind about the nature of this relationship. Uh, but again, if I was a betting man, I'd probably parrot what, what a lot of people say. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I agree. Cool. Should we briefly go over... I feel like we've talked about it on the show, but it might be helpful just to kind of talk about how we might go about this in practice. Just again, let's kind of sure. take the research out the window um, and talk about what we do in practice. So I can think of a handful of people that I work with that I like, they either came to me and they were just like feeling really, really beat up or they just weren't progressing well. And I, and I suggested that, um, or I, 
um, I suspected, I don't know why I couldn't find that word. I suspected that their training execution wasn't, wasn't very good. Things weren't, they weren't kind of crossing their T's, dotting their I's from a training execution perspective. And I just bring that volume to the floor and I never have a reason to, to go back up. And I've had multiple cases of people progressing really well for on the magnitude of years with volumes that I kind of just saw as like a reset. And then things just go so well, and I don't have a reason to increase it. I'm not saying that lower volumes are better, but I, I like wanted to start with that because that's my general approach. If things aren't going very well for, for an individual, it's not my approach. If things are going really well, if, if things are going really well, someone comes to us, um, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make big changes because things are going well. Why would, why would you change things? Um, you might just kind of incorporate your, your general system of, of analyzing things and, and having good historical training data. Um, but again, for, for someone that seeks out working with us, for example, chances are things aren't going insanely well. And I would rather take a few steps back and then push that up as needed, specifically talking about volume here. But I think this just goes with a lot of training variables, specificity, proximity to failure. I'd rather pull back a little bit, um, make sure we're crossing our T's, dotting our I's from an execution, from an RER accuracy, uh, perspective from an exercise selection for them based on their strength limiters, which again, we've talked about on previous shows and see what happens. And I'd say the average response, at least initially to that is things feeling better for sure. And for a lot of folks, surprisingly good progress. Now you need to be careful to make sure that's not just a little tapering effect where you see good progress for four to six weeks. Um, but if you see progress kind of beyond the short term, it might be an indication that Again, some of those kind of foundational pieces before you can even get to volume weren't in place. And that is, is number one. And I wish I could go back four or five years and, and tell myself that because I think I kind of struggled with that individualization process for a lot of folks by being too aggressive right off the bat or um, kind of taking what they were doing before and adding 20 to 30% because I wanted to get them a quick win. Whereas I actually think a, a, a quicker win would be to, to pull someone back get them feeling really good, have good predictable training with, with minimal aches and pains, um, and then push it up as needed. And if, if you have to kind of push to that point where recovery is borderline, aches and pains are, are around, but um, still tolerable, that's okay. But at least you know you had to go there. That's where I feel really confident is when I'm at a high workload that is difficult to recover from, but I know that's necessary. Where I get really uncomfortable is when we're there, things are kind of going okay, but um, we haven't really explored that lower range of things. So that was a very long way of saying exhaust those lower volumes um, unless you're very confident that's not the best option for you. Um, so yeah, what do you think about that? No, I, I, I definitely tend to agree. Um, I would say the the one thing that I've kind of come to over time is that, as you said, the execution is absolutely paramount. And I think that takes more work, even for people that know what they're doing, than I think people give credit for. Like, it's not just like, you come in one week and, oh, I, I know what two RR is on leg press now, I'm good. Like that, that is something that I kind of like to see over the course of an entire block, multiple blocks, repeating that session in, session out. That's like a different it's just like a different way to approach training overall, rather than like, we need to fix this set. It's like, we need to fix how you train first. And that's like, 
it's just it's just a bigger shift in focus and intent than I think people realize, which is like when when you know, we talk about this in the group all the time. I think we've said that on multiple episodes, but like when you kind of relearn that entire process and like like I said, tr- kind of transform the way you even approach training overall, that's a very substantial shift in like how a, a given session feels. It's not it's not this micro change of like you just need to push your set harder. It's like you need to push every single set harder with better execution, with more mental focus, with better attention to detail in every single regard. And if you do that for four sessions a week, for six weeks, for multiple blocks, like that's just a really big change. It's not this minor thing that like, oh, it maybe will bring my volume down like a set or two. Like it could very substantially change things. Um, so like that's that's the first thing I think I've over time given more credence to like the fact that that can be a pretty darn big impact and it's not like this small cog in the machine. I think if people approach it that way too, you are able to better identify and get bought into the process sooner rather than later. Cause I think a lot of time, you know, we get people in, in the VIP group, a lot of the time that kind of come from higher volume programs and there that's, there's that initial lack of buy-in of decreasing things. And I, that is completely understandable. Like you, you, you know, especially if you've seen progression with very high volumes in the past, it's, it's difficult to kind of go away from that. But if you're, like I said, like really committing to that kind of trying to transform the way that you train on those foundational components, I think that buy-in happens much sooner when you realize this is something that really can substantially shift things as opposed to viewing it as like this minor change on like a set to set basis. I don't know if that is something that makes sense, but that's, that's the first thing for me is just understanding the weight of that kind of shift. Um, but the second thing I was going to say that I think is another non-negligible thing that people don't realize adds up considerably over time is the effect independent of everything else of just like longer sessions. I think for particularly for strength, if you can just train with lower volumes, which is going to be shorter sessions, I think you can kind of dial everything else in a little bit better. Like I'm just thinking about like the peak load for top sets. Like if you're just doing less work overall, I feel like you come into those with a fresher mind, more clarity, you know, much more of a performance mindset. And you're able to have like a really, really high quality sessions on a more frequent basis. So what I'm what I'm saying there is I'm not saying, again, like you said, lower volumes are better for everybody. I'm just saying that we probably want to get you to the lowest volume you can make solid progress with, as that has a lot of downstream benefits that I think, you know, we really only want to increase things when we absolutely have to. And that number that's at like a low, low productive volume for each individual is going to be very different, probably. But I think there's just a lot of logistical benefits that come from training with lower volumes. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if either of those things make sense, but those are kind of two indirect things that I think about in addition to kind of just the general things that you said. Now, that said, the one thing I'll throw in here to end is that don't don't get it twisted. I, I've prescribed some pretty high volumes when they're indicated, and they definitely are indicated Sometimes, um, you know, I, I, as myself, you know, have some pretty interesting anecdotes, particularly with my bench press that to get that to peak condition, I got to do some pretty crazy stuff. 
Um, and I think the thing, the thing that's interesting to me though, from like an anecdotal perspective is for the most part, I think this changes a little bit when you mentioned like there are some scenarios when people have dealt with an injury that's very chronic that I might have a short-term trade-off in symptoms that I'm willing to accept based on very, very extensive history and troubleshooting with their, with said injury. But for the most part, I don't think I've had a client that required doing something that felt unsustainable, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, There are definitely times when you got to push things and training is difficult and that's kind of the way you make progress in one way or another, things are going to be hard, but I haven't really ever, I don't think I've had a case where you need to push things with volume to an extent where the client is like, eh, this feels kind of, this is a lot. Um, I don't know if you disagree with that. I can think of one or two in my head where I'm, I don't disagree, but I might just push back or be a little bit more tentative with that. Now I want to be very, very clear right off the bat that like I'm very conservative in my mm-hmm. scope of practice and I am quick to refer out when I ever feel like I'm not within my wheelhouse and, and wheelhouse being from the perspective of, of a strength coach managing training variables in a way that's going to best benefit the athlete. Um, but with that said, di- like you'll just kind of notice different people have different patterns and when things start to flare up and and not feel so great. Um, I have one guy particularly I'm thinking about where we, the, the way I like to frame it to him. And when we talk about it is our tolerance for this discomfort and for this individual, it's pec discomfort. Our tolerance for this discomfort is going to be higher when we're, you know, six weeks out or less. Just, just just to get this on the front end, this is a scenario in which I agree. I 100% agree for some people that deal with chronic issues, there's a trade-off in like the amount of symptoms that you're willing to accept. Mm-hmm. I'm talking in the 90% of people that don't deal with those issues, but continue with the anecdote because I do think it's important. I just want to make sure we're not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're probably coming at it from different angles. I, I agree with that then. Uh, but there are specific scenarios and the ones that come to mind for me are people that are very well trained, very strong. Um, but to touch what we need to touch within training to get what, what I've deemed to be a productive stimulus to, to peak strength, it comes with pushing that borderline a little put. Yeah. Pushing that borderline a little bit. Um, whereas our tolerance for it is very low. If, if we're not, you know, that close to a competition or, you know, something else we we've deemed, we've deemed important. Um, so that that would be my perspective, but I agree in general. I I don't want to go there unless I absolutely have to. I don't want to go there unless I I want to. And, and and you better believe that right after that meet for our next block, we're going to try some other things that I feel like we're kind of configuring the dosage a little bit more, uh, a little bit differently to get a similar effect in a more tolerable way. Um, but sometimes there's there's no way around it, or it's just you find yourself in a situation where you know. It's, it's now or never to some degree and you got to figure it out. And okay. When we've done this in the past, it was a little bit uncomfortable, but we saw that you were able to sustain it the best you, you, yeah, you were able to sustain it to get to that taper essentially and for things to, to go well. So as, as like a practical example of what I'm talking about is like small love, for example. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that is like, you are doing a volume that 
genuinely probably feels unsustainable immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas, whereas, you know, somebody that's a very high volume venture that we may have, you know, pushing somewhere in the 25 to 30 sets set range occasionally that to me for the most part isn't something where they're like oh my god this is something i especially in the way we configure it with you know auto regulation manipulate exercise selection you do a lot of things to make that tolerable right and and more enjoyable it's more of a thing where like man i'm sick of benching dude as opposed to every time i get under the bar when i'm doing a small off squat cycle i'm like man hopefully hopefully this goes okay you know what i mean like it's just that that's kind of what i'm I'm referring to because I think that potentially was the narrative in, in some kind of ages of this discussion of like, yeah, like got to get that volume up there, man. You know, like and really using that as like a vehicle of like, you got to make it uncomfortable. Whereas to me, you're kind of trying to find that Goldilocks zone of, yeah, this is challenging. This is training hard but it in no way really feels unsustainable except in the cases where you exactly as you're mentioning, where we're going to do everything we can to configure a given doses that we deem to be productive training in a way that makes it as comfortable as possible. But in that case, the source of, uh, the source of, uh, the, the source of unsustainability is different than specifically going after trying to do as much volume as you can, I guess is kind of what I'm, what I'm, what I'm getting at. And I think, you know, there's a lot of volume junkies out there that kind of specifically seek that out as opposed to the cases we're talking about where we have troubleshooted that thing so much. And we realize there is a dosage that is necessary to make good things happen. And in the short term, very close to competition or whatever it is, you kind of have to have a small trade-off. The client understands that. And we're going to, 95% 95% of the time, we're going to be at a point where our tolerance threshold is very low and it's kind of the other side of the coin. Um, so I hopefully that adds a bit more context on what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I would acknowledge, though, those approaches can go well for some people. We need, I, what's the counterfactual? Well, that's the only thing I, that's the, mm, every time I think about this, what's the counterfactual? You can say what? that about all training observations, which, for, for which sure. is obviously fair and important to keep in mind, but. I guess what I'm saying is you might be applying a little bit more scrutiny to that, to this one. I think it's because the costs are higher, like, right. Like, which is I fair, think, which is fair. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's why to me is that not only does that have the potential to not allow you to make progress that can have the potential to leave you wrecked to the extent you can't make progress for a long time. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're kind of on the other side of the spectrum, you know, you might spin your wheels a little bit, but you're probably not going to set yourself back for the very, very long term and you can continue to make changes and try different things. So yeah. that, that, that would be, but I, I do agree though. Like that, that is something I think about all the time is like, what can we learn from that? What, what, what is the nugget of truth from like all those just insane programs that really push your limits? Um, and you know, I, I, I think that is kind of coming back to the very start of the conversation is like, that's where that dose response relationship does kind of start to matter again, right? Is because once we get to those points of those plateaus, somebody's been training for five to 10 years and they're really struggling. We've manipulated pretty much every other variable. Knowing what that relationship looks like probably is helpful. And does it truly have diminishing returns in which we'll go check out, you know, other variables even, even harder and try to manipulate those things. But if it does continue to be pretty strong up to like pretty high set volumes, that would potentially 
change the way you would maybe approach that situation. And that's just something we just don't know with enough confidence to make a, a high decision there. Um, but it's, yeah, that, that's like a, just like a practical example of why, where that may help to explain that anecdote a little bit and place that, how you would deal with that situation when somebody that's very advanced and has a tough time making progress and, you know, has a recovery capacity that could potentially handle that for at least the short to moderate term. So are you kind of saying it might be worth exploring if that relationship is stronger with higher volumes than we might think? Yeah. Like, you know, I, I just, I just think of like, again, there, there is a, I don't even know how to articulate it appropriately, but there, there is a level of uncomfortable that comes from, you know, just like at a fixed training program, but you're increasing volume, right? There's a, there's a level of uncomfortable slash unsustainable that goes from, man, I'm sick of squats to, I genuinely don't think this is a good idea. Or I'm like experiencing subjective symptoms of overreaching exactly. such as inability to sleep. Yeah. M- poor mood. Yeah. I put like that, that. Yeah, yeah. I put that in the ladder bucket. Exactly. Yeah. And then the question is how f- close to the fire do we have to be to push the needle in those cases where like we see a really strong plateau and some of those, some of those anecdotes of like people just absolutely blowing up on some of those programs that are uh, yeah face value, pretty unrealistic is potential ind- indication that maybe flying a little bit close to that flame can be useful in some scenarios. Now, is that the thing we should just jump to right away? Obviously not, but I think it brings it back to that dose response relationship of like, I think for very good reason, I'm going to try to say this as cautiously as possible for very good reason. People theorize and practically suggest diminishing returns at very high volumes, but population, all the considerations we talked about, like, I think there's at least anecdotes in the kind of the sphere that could suggest that's at least something worth exploring and not completely turning your brain off to the possibility that that could be a tool that you'd want to leverage in certain scenarios in the face of a plateau and, and, and an individual who seems like that could be useful. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that's the extreme I'd go to, but I don't know the last time I've had somebody consistently perform over like 15 sets of quads, right? Yeah. Like that kind of thing. So, where, go ahead. so to circle back to kind of what you were initially saying, you were advising against that. You were saying like, I've, I've, if I recall correctly, you were like, I haven't had someone do an approach that feels unsustainable. In the second bucket though, there's a difference. That's what I'm saying is like, there, there is a distinction between this genuinely feels like it's not a good idea. And this is just a lot of volume and I don't enjoy doing the activity anymore because I've done so much of it that it's starting to become this mundane task where you kind mm-hmm. of, um, it's just monotony and training and, and some of those symptoms that I think start to crop up before you actually get to the point of like, this mm-hmm. is just way too much. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying there's, I'm generally, I'm generally never going over the line of, into the, the second bucket, but that gray zone of like, this is completely sustainable versus, you know, getting to that, that gray zone, I think is mm-hmm. where I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, well, I think a lot, I, th- I think a lot of people go there for bench press, but for some of the other lifts, I'm not sure. Yeah. Once you get to, once you suspect you might be falling into that second bucket a little bit, that's when you're like full stop, it's time to make a change. Because yes. I've very rarely suspected we were starting to get into that second bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what, that's when you, that's when you 
you know, make a change as soon as possible. Exactly. I would, I would add another caveat that like with some of the periodization approaches, and I also really, really like to emphasize what I like to call psychological periodization, which is just a different mindset you're taking to different weeks, depending on where you're at in a training block or a training cycle. Um, it might be, it might be unsustainable to sustain those hardest weeks and those weeks that you're, you're taking the highest psychological approach, but you're able to sustain the rhythm at which we have. And I really yeah. like, I really like yeah, that yeah, feeling yeah, in the yeah. sense of like, okay, this is, this is, this is a red week, right? Cause I like to color code them. This is a red week and I can with full confidence do something that is unsustainable this week because I know that I'm not doing it next week. So yeah, that, the, that's an exactly. important, yeah, that's an the important, the entire approach is sustainable. The, right. my, the micro isn't sustainable. So I think exactly. that's, the, that's important. That's, I just want to mention that cause I think yeah. it could be misconstrued. Exact same thing with volume. Like you could do a, you know, a, if you do have like a ramping sets approach, you could say the same thing, right? Like you could do an amount of volume there that's potentially unsustainable overall, but the entire approach is right. sustainable to you. But I guess we're talking about over a given period of time, kind of the average volume, I think is what we're predominantly discussing. Yeah, we should probably end this podcast soon, but I'll mention one more time is just a quick strategy. And this, I asked you about this, Zach. Um, it's just a what to do when... Ooh. I was going to bring this up. I know exactly what you're going to say. Yeah. Like if, if you just can't get a lift to progress for someone and you suspect you just like, man, we just haven't really like, you know, uh, the whole game is like a, is like, are, are we getting warmer? Are we getting colder? It's like, man, we just really haven't gotten warmer at all. What, what to do. <laughs> um, and basically what I, what I have going for one lifter in particular is essentially a ramping sets approach. Um, where, so it's, so it's on bench press three bench sessions a week. And there's a little bit of undulation in the reps, but each session is, is very similar. Um, so it's a single at the same exact RP every single session. Again, that's to help us. That's not necessarily what I would do otherwise, but it's just to help us like kind of see what's going on in terms of performance. Um, starting with kind of like lower volumes and then just adding, a little bit of little bit of work every single week, making sure they feel confident that they can they can, you know, be safe going up, and seeing at which point the singles might start to fall off because the workload was so high from the previous session. So if you're benching say Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and you're able to push to two times the volume you were doing before, and your volume performance or your top single performance is the same on Monday and Wednesday. That might be a sign you were doing way too little volume before because they're recovering just fine from it and able to perform the same 48 hours later. Now, is that perfect indication that that is the optimal volume for them? No, but it's at least indication that they can recover from it just fine. And they might be someone that's an outlier that needs 32 sets of bench press per week. And based on our biases that we kind of outlined, we might not get there as quick because of our general approach that we've talked about. Um, but you need to find a way to get someone to those outlier approaches if you need to. So um, I've done similar things in the past, but without that that top single approach that Zach, you mentioned, just as a way to kind of see essentially like a session maximal recoverable volume. Um, so we'll see how it goes, but I, I really like it in theory. And I've had success with approaches like that without that approach. And I think this will only improve kind of the, the diagnostic clarity. 
Yeah, shout out to – I think we've talked about him before, but one of my old coaches, John Hanley, was the one that kind of gave me that kind of conceptual idea of like starting and sometimes just starting from scratch and kind of trying to find like what's a good workout for this person. You know, we talk about kind of meta-level programming all the time, you know, periodization, block by block, you know, intro weeks, all that kind of stuff. But sometimes in these scenarios when you're really struggling, it can help to just remove literally all of that and say – what does a good session look like for this person? You know, and you kind of make some assumptions on what a good session means, obviously, which, you know, may or may not be useful. But if you kind of triangulate your experience, like what's a reasonable frequency for this person, training status, strength level, style, et cetera. And then you just kind of see using some of those tools to like kind of monitor progression and performance primarily, honestly, and what what perturbs performance to let us know that we're actually doing something right and i think coming back to the limiter discussion then i'll shut up and we gotta we gotta get get out of here but um i think that is another approach that's helpful for that because if you are hammering a muscle group that you would expect to result in significant performance loss but it doesn't then maybe you're being limited by something that you're not hammering Right. So if you're limited by your pecs in the bench press and you are also doing an absurd amount of whatever it is, dumbbell bench, pushups, et cetera, after that bench session and you come back 48 hours later and it, like nothing happened, maybe the pecs aren't actually what's limiting you on that bench press. So I think it's another indirect approach that can simplify things in the short term, but then allow you to kind of build upon that and test your assumptions of what I so that that's that's the main thing that I've used it for is you know, I've, I've definitely used it for kind of the the dose kind of approximation when I just, for whatever reason, just cannot seem to get somebody's dose right. Strip everything back. Let's make this as simple as possible. But then the, the limiter approximation as well, just because sometimes those are hard to tell. And we've gone back and forth on, well, what does it mean when this happened? And just that conversation gets pretty complicated pretty quick. So using this as kind of a way to sp- somewhat objectively say is this actually what's limiting that that movement for them can can kind of be a a helpful tool i think nice good stuff (laughs) probably wrap it up there yeah cool all right if you made it to the end of the show um sorry we'll see you (laughs) in episode beginning was a train wreck (laughs) we'll we'll see you in episode 52 uh check out the stuff in the description whether you're on youtube or or podcast player for stuff we offer if you'd like to support the show. And thank you for tuning in. Take care.